I think with today's technology, there's a very rich sort of supplement of data. We've spoken about the pandemic and the impact that it had on small and medium-sized enterprises, or SMEs. We've spoken about how monetary policy was used in the U.S. and Europe to stabilize the economy and respond to the economic shocks that COVID-19 brought with it. But what we haven't looked at closely is how the Asian countries have responded to the crisis. That is, until today. I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and in today's episode of Women in Economics, we're getting a crash course on the Asian market. Today, I'm joined by Tao Wang, the chief China economist and head of Asia economics at UBS Global Research based in Hong Kong. Wang is an expert on the Chinese economy. She holds a PhD in economics from NYU, has served on the Mainland Opportunities Committee of the Hong Kong Financial Services Development Council, and is a member of the Chief China Economist Forum. So naturally, the experience of COVID-19 has been very different in Asia. The pandemic hit there earlier, but Asia also has different physical infrastructure and different reactions with regards to monetary policy. To get us started today, could you begin by explaining what sort of instruments the Asian economies, and perhaps particularly the Chinese economy, have been using in order to respond to the pandemic? So in Asia, especially in China, where the pandemic started, they, of course, started immediately with monetary and the fiscal help in the early days. But I think then the government recognized that without controlling the pandemic, these policies will not be working because people are locked down at home. They will not be able to spend or go back to work. And so the focus then quickly turned into really be strict with lockdown and testing. And then um, the monitoring and fiscal policies are sort of supplementary. So I think as a result, the size were a bit smaller. Of course, in the beginning, they did increase liquidity offering substantially after the Chinese New Year to ensure the market would function and things does not freeze. And then they gave a lot of uh, relief to small corporates. But I think what's different in China also, very interesting compared to capitalist countries, China actually did not give consumers or individual household checks for them to spend, even though there were a lot of advocates for it. They didn't do that. For other parts of Asia, a lot of support also went to the corporate side, corporate relief. But also there's a focus on trying to control the pandemic first. So lockdowns in a lot of the economies, shutting the borders, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea, and so on. They think compared to the Fed, they didn't feel they have as much power to come up with such big monetary support. According to routers and central bank data, in the first quarter of 2021, the People's Bank of China, or the PBOC, lent out a record high of 7.67 trillion won, roughly 1.19 trillion in US dollars or 1 trillion euros. And this surpassed their previous record of 7.1 trillion in 2020, as policymakers in the country began rolling out unprecedented measures to deal with the pandemic. Looking at these numbers, has there been structural policy change implemented at the Chinese Central Bank, or is this just business as usual? I think what the Chinese Central Bank has learned 
from the previous crisis, the global financial crisis, was that they did too much stimulus and then they had accumulated too much debt and they are still dealing with the consequences of that. So in response to the pandemic, they decided to go more modest and more moderate. They were more worried about doing too much and therefore they were already signaling to the market about an early exit of that stimulus. So it's a bit of opposite of what the ECB and the Fed had learned from the previous 12 years. The Central Bank of China have been quite vocal in voicing the concerns about the Fed printing too much money that uh, leading to potential high inflation worldwide, especially through commodity prices and so on. And a lot of investors here in Asia are worried about imported inflation on one side and also worried about all this liquidity, which are not all sitting in the development markets. They're also going to emerging markets. When the U.S. recovers strongly, and there seems to be on way to do that, then rates will go up and there will be a messy side effect for the emerging markets here where they enjoyed the benefit, I suppose, of this liquidity, but they will likely also suffer some negative after effect. Time for a sort of quick refresher. In 1997, the Asian financial crisis fundamentally changed corporate finance in the region. It began in Thailand after they devalued their currency, but quickly spread to other Eastern Asian economies and ultimately hit Latin America and Europe, namely Brazil and Russia, the following year. Market pressure led to the Philippines, Malaysia, and Indonesia to also weaken their currencies. The deterioration of Japan's economic and banking situation played a role, and South Korea was ultimately bailed out by the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, the World Bank, and the Asian Development Bank. South Korea, a country that was on the brink in 1997, has not borrowed from the IMF since that crash over 20 years ago now, according to the IMF. If you'd like more information or history here, you'll find a link in our show notes titled Asian Financial Crisis, compiled by the Federal Reserve, which is where I've also sourced this information. Okay, fast forward back to present day. What effect do you think this event had on how Asian policymakers today work to stabilize their economies? Are there lessons still at play? I think that we are still in the early days to some extent, um, but I think they did learn some lessons. From the Asia financial crisis, they learned a painful lesson of not keeping fixed exchange rate regime when your fiscal policies and monetary policies are not sustainable. That led to changes to the currency regime. And of course, accompanying that in that crisis, they also embarked on a lot of structural changes. Another consequence is a huge accumulation of foreign exchange reserves in the aftermath because they including in China, because they realized at the end of the day, it's still important to have FX reserves. And what about the financial crash of 2008? Are there lessons there or from these two previous crises collectively that led to how they handled the COVID-19 pandemic response? At the global financial crisis, there was a big shock, but the crisis originated elsewhere. So relatively speaking, it was a big export shock. And subsequently, I think the recovery was quicker. 
during the pandemic, I think because most Asian countries, at least in the first wave, did a relatively better job controlling the pandemic. They benefited from the global liquidity easing, so they didn't have to ease as much as in the West, as in the the U.S. and and so on. Now, of course, there's still a pandemic. And one thing I think the Asian central banks must pay attention to, again, is the exchange rate, is the spillover effect of what the Fed and the ECB does uh, globally. I think that's a big concern. The PPC has voiced it. Other central banks have not been as vocal. But I think there is a concern among Asia investors that, after the U.S. recovers strongly, we could see capital outflows. Data extraction and unconventional data sets were a very important place for analysis for many countries who are looking for signals within the economy, pathways to recovery, and so on. Are there big data items that economists can or have been using to get a better picture of what's happening in China? Or have the official statistics been the only option? At the aggregate level, at the macro level, we still have to use the official data. But luckily, I think increasingly we have a lot of micro level data. We have also various forms of now casting. And so we look at, for example, traffic congestions by 100 different cities. We look at also port activities, uh, shipping, waiting time. We look at productions and property sales. We, We look at a lot of activities at the micro level. It's not, of course, complete, but it gives us a very good picture, especially during the early days of the pandemic, where nobody knows really, including the officials, because they're not out there collecting data, what is going on. And what kind of estimates can be made with this data? Through this information, we can make a ballpark estimate as to, you know, did the activity drop 40% or 30% or 50%? That gave us really good guidance about consumption and um, uh, services, those kind of activities, uh, and helped with physical activities like industrial production and ports. It does not give the whole picture because often these things do not measure things that are always running, for example, utilities and uh, remote education or government services, but it gives us a pretty good picture on what's happening cyclically. So I think with today's technology, I think there's a very rich sort of supplement of data. Join us next week for a masterclass in economics where we'll be getting answers to a wide array of economics-based questions and definitions, including some of the terms you heard in today's episode. Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented. 